2: listening to the Hunter Conservationist Podcast.
3: I wanna dedicate this episode to a good friend of ours who's been on the podcast many times. In fact, he was on two episodes ago, giving us an analysis of the draft grizzly bear management strategy for British Columbia. So our good friend, Jesse Zeman, from Kelowna and his family's been severely negatively impacted by the big fires in the Okanagan and around Kelowna. So we just wanna share um, our thoughts out to Jesse and his family and the girls, man, what an outdoor family, what a close family that loves fishing and and hunting and prepping food together and everything. Jesse if you're listening uh, the show is for you and the reason uh, we picked it for you is because the topic is about hunting and its connection to the natural world in preserving the natural world conservation. I know you're a strong advocate for standing up for hunting because of the positive social economic and environmental benefits that hunting can and does provide to society so that's kind of what we're going to dig into in this show. And um, I know that's near and dear to you. So this show is for you and and the two characters are going to break it down uh, as well because we're going to have fun doing this as well. Hey, everybody, it's Mark Hall, your host.
2: And it's Curtis Hall, your co-host. Are you looking for a top-notch Toyota dealership that cares about the community? Well, our title sponsor of the Hunter Conservationist podcast is Alpine Toyota. They are not your average car dealer. They are proud supporters of us here at the Hunter Conservationist podcast, passionate about conservation. With a wide selection of Toyota vehicles, exceptional customer service, and a commitment to giving back, you can trust them to help you find the perfect ride while making a positive impact. Visit them today and experience the Alpine Toyota difference. As always, Big shout out to Alpine Toyota for their continual support of what we do here at Blood Origins Canada.
3: Thanks. Guys, welcome back to the show. It's taken actually a while into this year uh, to, for all of us to land our schedules together to get on the show so thanks for coming back. Uh, Matt Besco, Director of Wildlife and Licensing for the province of Alberta. And Dr. Lee uh, Foot?
1: Uh, My my table, my, my titles changed. It's changed. I knew it again, was again, again. Again, again. Okay. Tell so, us what you are. So uh uh executive director of hunting and fishing for uh it may Alberta change Forestry before the, the show is over too okay. at
0: the rate that they change them around.
1: It may, it may.
3: Okay. And and depending on how things go with Lee, he could give you his own own title. Um, so that, that might be- I'm debatable.
0: trying to get him, to get him fired he so he can will. be retired like me.
3: <laughs> so, please, please
1: don't Lee, please don't.
3: Also joining us, Dr. Lee Foote, retired yeah. scientist from the University of Alberta, living somewhere on an island Now, aren't you? Vancouver Island. I've got
0: to swim to get back to the mainland. We're on Vancouver Island.
3: In the province of BC. And do you have a BC hunting license now that you live here?
0: Sorry, it's, it's going to happen. I just got to get around to it. If if Matt would quit.
3: Curtis, can you put Lee on mute for the rest of the episode? (laughs) Matt would quit in front of moose
0: and big, big mule deer and whitetails. I would have the real pressing need to get, shoot one of these little micro deer over here.
3: On, yeah. the, on the island well it's uh it's uh quality over quantity i guess on uh from from a moose or a big white tail buck yeah. in alberta yeah. to black tail deer oh, on the so island Curtis, so all right we will give you Curtis one more Mark, episode this
0: is my first my first episode to be with y'all on the blood origins podcast
3: yeah still the yes. hunter conservationist podcast but we are now blood yeah. origins canada yeah. so yeah it's like a I
1: like it. Merging.
3: Yeah, we're super excited about it. Thanks.
1: Yeah. I no, no, it's great.
3: Now, this topic is, is this podcast uh, what I want to get you to talk about is based on a research paper I found I right around New Year's sometime or around Christmas time and I and I was just like, "Wow, I've never heard of this before. This is super interesting and I know exactly who I want to have on the show to talk about it. It's just taken us a little while to get here. I just, uh, this seems like a couple of weeks ago, we were like, yeah, let's do some podcasts. And it was Christmas time. And Lee was trying to be all serious on the couch and give us a Christmas message. And you're behind him Matt, there holding some deer antlers over his head on the couch when he's trying to be all serious. And geez, that was, that was like eight months ago. So (laughs) here we are. So. The paper that I'm gonna uh, talking about, what it's the title of this podcast. Should hunting as a cultural heritage be protected? So it is a scientific paper that was published in 2020, and I'm gonna give you just a synopsis of my understanding of what this is about to set the stage for Matt and Lee to give us uh, their thoughts on this idea. So this paper is an assessment of hunting. And it's an assessment of hunting using the Polish hunting model. And it's comparing it against criteria that were established under the UNESCO convention for the safeguarding of the intangible cultural heritage, which was established in 2003. So UNESCO uh, Division of the United Nations stands for United Nations Educational Science and Cultural Organization. So this particular convention is about things that countries and regions of the world should do to safeguard cultural heritage, but the intangible parts of cultural heritage. So not buildings, museums, paintings, but these nuanced things that that define a culture of people. In this specific paper, they're looking at the convention, And they're asking the question, if the intergenerational transfer and collective knowledge and the exercising of hunting skills is an intangible cultural heritage in Poland. The premise is in protecting the intangible aspects of a cultural heritage is if those intangible aspects of a culture are connected to and leading to tangible benefits for nature, creating tangible natural heritage heritage in countries and regions of the world, then that cultural heritage practice should also be protected because it's essentially leading to the protection of a natural heritage for that cultural region. So they wanna ask whether hunting skills and practices in a particular region or country, this one being Poland, deserve legal protection as knowledge and practices that are based on nature because they provide these nature based benefits. There's five tests <clears throat> to determine whether hunting is an intangible cultural heritage that should have legal protection. So, one, Are the hunting knowledge and skills collective? Are they something that's possessed by everybody in the culture? Are they passed on from generation to generation? Are they embedded in the people themselves, part of the culture? Does that knowledge and skills about hunting in any way conflict with human rights principles? The third test, what is the significance of this hunting knowledge and skills for the protection of nature and conservation? What is the significance of this hunting knowledge and skills for economic balance? And do these does this hunting knowledge and skills demonstrate a cultural identity in the area that's based on nature? So those are like the five tests to determine whether hunting And in this case the polish hunting model uh, is an intangible cultural heritage that should have legal protection because it's creating natural heritage so this this was kind of cool so this assessment method is designed to strip away all the rhetoric around ideologies and the political correctness of hunting because it's being attacked under all these different ideologies and and political correct ways and these sorts of things. So they're saying they'll strip all that away and look for these intangible cultural heritage benefits that are benefiting nature. So they wanted to broaden the perspective, the look at hunting and uh, the, the author said, we want to change the perspective on the analysis of hunting from a phenomenon that is reduced to just talking about some type of special hunting like bow hunting or deer hunting uh, and its related rituals. And they wanna look at hunting in a more broad way. And and, and is hunting a group of nuanced or or manifestations of this intangible heritage? So some of the things they're asking is hunting have skills that are transferred and exercised in a traditionally established manner. Is hunting related to the economic sphere, like regulating animal numbers, reducing damage? Uh, does hunting provide for nature, conservation, reducing invasive species, uh, reintroduction of endangered species, these sorts of things. And as well, does the culture of hunting have a specific language, its own literature, music, or venison based cuisine. So they're wanting to kind of expand what we would normally think of if we're analyzing hunting. Now here's an example. So under the UNESCO convention for safeguarding the intangible cultural heritage, 18 countries of the world submitted to the United Nations that hunting with falcons be established under the convention as an intangible cultural heritage of hunting that has these benefits. So it's considered an intangible cultural heritage um, because it involves the protection of wildlife, both the falcons that are used for hunting and the prey species. Hunters are involved and the culture is involved in protecting both of those. It has benefits to the economy, like the controlling of um, birds around airports for public safety. <clears throat> so I kind of thought that was an interesting uh, example of what we're getting at here. <clears throat> this paper focused specifically, like I said, on the Polish hunting model. And they said the traditions, legal regulations and modern hunting practices in Poland constitute a good basis for conducting such an extensive test of the legal rationality of defining hunting as an intangible cultural heritage in Poland. The basic conclusion of the paper was, yes, the transfer and application of hunting skills in the form practiced by the Polish Hunting Association for over 100 years is a manifestation of the intangible cultural heritage that deserves legal protection. And they're encouraging other countries of the world to look at hunting in that same light. So uh, hopefully that's a good understanding of the paper and what these guys are gonna talk about. So the central question I kind of would like to get around and it's probably gonna go all over the place, looking at the North American model of wildlife conservation and from a non-Indigenous hunting perspective, um, is hunting under the North American model an intangible cultural heritage? So the hunting skills and practices in Canada Canada and North America deserve legal protection as knowledge and practices that are based on nature and they result in tangible benefits to the natural heritage of North America, Canada, regions.
1: There you go. So if you, so if you take the North American model of wildlife conservation, it would apply partly to hunting, partly to tenure and ownership around wildlife in North America. Um, It would also apply to a number of other uh, jurisdictional management, ethics, ethos, but not necessarily around the culture of hunting itself. But European hunting, hunting in general, if we applied these criteria to hunting in many different nations, and we're, both Lee and I from are familiar about Poland, one, because I grew up in a de facto Polish hunting culture, and two, uh, both Lee and I have hunted in Poland, so we were privy to many aspects of that. We could say the same about different hunting traditions and heritage in a variety of other countries whether or not that's an intangible benefit that applies to the unesco criteria i think we can apply all of that quite loosely however the north american model and north american hunting traditions and hunting culture i think albeit related i think that the criteria associated with which defines each one is probably separate in terms of this particular question so there's seven tenets in the north american model and a lot of them are around you know wildlife as a public trust resource um you know the the uh, uh wildlife for legitimate use only uh wildlife not for illegal markets some of them have some you know crossovers but it isn't necessarily defined just around hunting related elements
0: in some ways this is trying to throw a blanket of approval whether it's north american wildlife management model or it's the unesco criteria and gain legitimacy for what a large group of people want uh, but this is these in some ways, these are matters of the heart and matters of the passion, matters of culture and intergenerational, and they are s- quite subjective. Quite, uh, they don't yield well to scientific analysis, yet they vaguely fit some of these criteria, and we, we need that comfort and that structure, I think, in order for us to have something to hold on to to carry this forward and legitimize it, if you will. Now, hunters don't need to legitimize their activity because they they've bought in, But to those that are doubting and those that would oppose or those that that would want criteria, a litmus test, if you will, about the legitimacy of hunting, then ticking these boxes off of of collective skills and and, um, uh, uh, significant conservation, economic basis, these sorts of things, they help highlight and spotlight the value of hunting, not just to hunters as a self gratifying activity, but to a broader society, they embed hunting in society in a meaningful way that you can see from any perspective. So I like that. It's been very popular in the Southern United States for states to just on a whim pass these really interesting laws that say it is a, a state right to hunt. And so it's a way of holding the, the anti-hunting folks in abeyance. And it's um, they don't have a lot of philosophical backing like this does, uh, but they're It's something that it's, it's positioning in some ways to gain, hopefully gain acceptance, but there's a talking point here that has some real opportunities to bring the discussion to hunters, non-hunters, future hunters, past hunters, and say, look, this, this institution that's carried down through the generations is absolutely doing good for all of us. And I sort of have jokingly said to Mark, really, I distill this down to one line is hunting good for does hunting make the world a better place? And to me, that's sort of my course's litmus test. They've broken it down into finer divisions here. And I come down resoundingly, yes. Sure, there are some rotten apples and some bad examples out there, and there's some conflict. But overall, it does make our world in Canada a better place for a lot of the reasons spelled out in this paper and some other ones. If we can reconcile the indigenous, non-indigenous friction that currently exists, and I'm confident we can... If we can uh, get the public to understand that there is no true balance of nature, it's not a stable thing, that there are fluctuations and we are adaptive and respond responsibly to these changes, that has value. If we do full utilization, if we link to disease control and and management that way, if we realize that the most dangerous animal in Canada is a white-tailed deer because it kills so many people on the highways and we are part of the solution, we're part of the fix-it solution more so than part of the a problem so i think we need to reorient ourselves and these talking points are actually quite helpful
3: yeah
1: well i i would also i i would also look at the existing legislation that we have recognizing hunting fishing and trapping in canada in alberta we have a hunting fishing and trapping heritage act that was uh that was put into place in 2008. And it basically says, yeah, um, Albertans have the right to hunt fish and trap within the provisions of the law and the Wildlife Act, Fisheries Act and the Migratory Birds Convention Act. So basically it says, yeah, you can hunt as long as the legislation allows you to hunt. but And that recognizes the heritage of hunting in Alberta, but is it a distinct cultural intangible. And I always look to the example of something along the lines of um, a tangible benefit and the recognition around that, including what Lee described as pretty loose principles. So let's take a look at a protected cultural um, tangible product and Neapolitan pizza has to be made from Durham wheat or semolina wheat from a particular area in italy it has to have san marzano tomatoes it has to have buffalo mozzarella and it has to be made in naples the same for champagne you could take the same grapes the same methods the same materials to create that type of product in california but you can't call it champagne it's unique to the region if you take an analogy to hunting and let's say it's polish hunting there may be very many common elements around the way polish people would hunt and it's common with hungarians germans czechs russians to some extent those same sort of hunting traditions that are passed down from generation to generation. It may be even practiced in some parts of North America, but because it's unique to the Polish language, the Polish culture, the Polish forests, then is it part of the Polish culture? Is it intangible? Given the definitions here, I would agree with Lee yes it meets those definitions is it subjective yes but there's a much bigger set of questions here that we have to uh, address and that's is hunting in general beneficial to nature Are hunters and our human beings benefiting from the hunting experience and what really really struck me as part of this paper is the fifth criterion is that the hunting knowledge and skills versus the idea of nature related cultural identity. So it speaks to me as either human beings are part of nature and participating actively in a natural ecological process. In this case, it would be predation. And we far removed ourselves from that type of element. We do so indirectly, we we prey upon all sorts of parts parts of the natural world, but we do this act deliberately and it's unique from any other sort of nature-related activity and we take responsibility for it. That's something that's unique to hunting and it has its benefits, economic and otherwise, but in terms of providing that particular relationship to our natural world, it's unique in, in of itself. It has benefits and I think it should be respected even for that. I would like alone. to say
0: that your ass is sucking pond water there, Matt, but you put, you hit the nail on the head. I think we
1: tend to agree. <laughs> um, you, you, that was, it usually sucks pond water, you, but you was, know, that was very well, even a blind very well, <laughs> very squirrel finds a nut. Very
0: well said. And I think you're exactly right. The get off point on this ladder of things that we appreciate between the hunter and the bird watcher photographer is that intentionality to take a life and to take responsibility for it and extend that tendril of mortality causation out there and actually own that setting and that situation with some pride, with some backing, with legal grounding and with intention to use it. that That's a profound, profound sort of thing to, to deliberately and responsibly take a life for the good. And uh, there's lots of places people take lives for the bad, but thinking Ukraine and others and, in Maui, but, but there's to take a life for the good of the system, not the individual necessarily, the good of the system, whether it's state, whether it's the next generation, whether it's your grandparents, whether it's it's whoever's going to eat this, whether it's the, the swine flu that you're helping diminish in Poland, uh, that, that that's justifiable, profound, and, uh, deserves some lauding and protection. When,
1: when I think of, of, how human beings relate to nature, whether or not they're part of nature, independent of nature, I often think to the scientific analogy of what constitutes light. Is it a particle or is it a wave? Is it yep. a particle or wave? Is yep. that the, yeah. And in my mind, the human beings are very much a part of nature. Um, but what distinguishes us us from nature is, I believe, our consciousness, Uh, not necessarily consciousness, but conscience, and our reflection, self-awareness, and our deliberate desire to take responsibility based on intangible definitions of what we believe to be an ethical construct. So we take the life of an animal in the field. We aren't going to eat it from the ass out in in and then you know leave the rest we will take responsibility for that and where the uniqueness of european hunting traditions come forward as well as some indigenous hunting traditions you give thanks for that animal in that hunting experience you share that with friends there's a certain ceremony and use of symbology When you use hazel or conifer and dip it in the blood of the animal, and you put it on a hat and you present it to the hunter, and you shake their hands, and you know, like the bottle of Jägermeister, when when you read that, uh, our German friends frequently remind us in between shots that it basically says this is to honor the uh, animal or the the hunter or the the quarry and the creator who made it and that's pretty unique um is it tied to a particular hunting culture or hunting tradition absolutely is it unique to hunting itself yeah quite possibly um and you apply the same sort of criteria yeah that's one of those things
3: it's an intangible benefit that we were just describing right like that's kind of what this is is designed at is like what are these things that these hunters are doing in their culture that's this intangible thing like it's not it's not like oh look hunters have a trophy room there it is they have a museum it's like no what this intangible thing it's like if you're a scientist with your with your notepad and your pen and you're peering through the window and it's like they gather in the room the fire is lit um the bottle is taken off the shelf and it's like then these shots and then they say these certain things and uh they talk about like the deer and stuff and this happens time and time again year after year after generation after generation and somebody goes there's this thing that hunters do and then they go out and there's still deer on the landscape and everybody's getting you know like that's what I find really fascinating here is this whole it's hard to wrap your head around it. And I I struggle with this intangible cultural heritage and assessing hunting for the for the elements of an intangible cultural heritage. Another exa- another example I I was I can think of here are hound hunters. Let's specifically talk about. Cougar hunters. So now if you're gonna study them as a culture and and say, is there a cultural identity here? Is there unique aspects of hunting that's got an intangible cultural heritage that's providing, that's based on nature, that's providing like some good. And I think about families that have raised and created their own bloodlines of dogs handed down from great grandfather to grandfather, you know, grandmother, like these sorts of things, their passion, their knowledge, their worshiping of these cats, the pursuit, not taking them sometimes, you know, walking away, the love of the dogs, all of these things. If somebody were to study that and go, there's a whole bunch of intangible things that these people are doing with hunting passed down knowledge and skills nobody else on the face of the planet knows how to find a cougar tree it and and whether to take a picture of it shoot it or put a radio collar on it and and study it and i i would say like those are those things that we're getting at to quantify and what these folks were saying is is like say yes there's still cougars on the western landscape in part because of this, and because of these intangible things around this group of people that <clears throat> hunt yeah. cougars. I, I just find like, and, and part of what I liked about what they were saying was, is getting past the, retic- retic- the rhetoric and the political correctness of, you know, hunting hunting with dogs is cruel, and it's a blood sport, and these people are horrible people, and they should die terrible, deaths 10 times over and this sort of stuff. And, and they're saying, no, strip all that away. And are there things about these people that have led to the preservation of habitat and mountain lions that's worth a country or a region saying these intangible benefits need to be protected. These people need to be allowed to continue to raise dogs and pursue cats because it's connected to our natural heritage and the fact that we have lions living in North America. Well,
0: we're jumping back and forth a bit here. I, I get everything you said. I've seen the same thing play out with some serious rabbit hunters or beagles in the South. A lot of those guys don't even shoot rabbits. They just want to hear the dogs run. They want to see the dogs work. And I'm thinking this goes back to that famous story in one of the financial books where the guy said, you know, I've got something that Bill Gates doesn't have. Bill Gates has everything he wants. And he said, no, he doesn't. I have something he, he doesn't have. And, and what's that? I have enough. And and in the same way that the intangible things that are, i maybe it's because I'm old, maybe it's because I come from a Southern storytelling uh, background, the things that are really the most valuable in our lives are things that really aren't tangible. It's love, it's gratitude, it's appreciation, it's, it's uh, satisfaction, anticipation. Uh, and I would contend that many of us don't hunt for meat or the animal or the bragging rights. We're basically hunting for a deep, rich, meaningful uh, satisfaction. We're hunting for meaning. It positions us in the world. It reinforces a self-identity. It links us to our ancient past, our recent past, and hopefully into our future. It gives us a small window to see into what will happen to this bag of meat when it expires. When you actually get to put your hands on an animal and see that famous all the Leopold's green light flicker out in the eyes of the wolf. You get to see an animal die of your intention right there. It brings about a wave of not only gratitude, but sorrow, responsibility. It comes with a mandate to fully utilize this animal and to make sure that its offspring have the habitat to continue to replace themselves. So what you get is you get a charge, a mandate from your activities to pour yourself back in, to give in the same measure that you've received. And what you've received is much more profound than 120 kilograms of meat. It's a profound insight into self and orientation to the world and a commitment to the future, a reassurance of the past. And you're part of an unbroken chain. And this is where I think that heritage piece comes in. It's part of an unbroken chain that moves back into time immemorial. We can only trace back to Lascaux and maybe some fossils before that, but we know that we are the modern day progenitors of that chain that's continuous in humanity up to now. We are fully human and fully continuously human with our, our ancestry, but responsibly participating in this field endeavor called hunting.
1: Yeah, I, I, I would also, my shock and surprise is I completely and utterly agree with Lee. Wait, I'll change my story. I'll point. change the story then. <laughs> and I agree. Yeah. And, and it brings us closer to what being a human being is fundamentally, not in terms of just our biology, not in terms of obtaining resources, exploiting our environment, keeping ourselves alive, but providing meaning in terms of who we are as human beings within the natural world and how we relate to each other. It's often argued that postmodern human beings and social systems and cultures and traditions and belief systems and scientific um, uh, principles and ideologies will define and they're progressive. But one thing, as Lee mentioned, is we can't escape who we are in terms of someone that lives in nature, someone that's part of nature, someone that takes responsibility for nature, and someone that needs to be able to connect back to nature to become more human, not less human.
0: Well said, Matt. I'm... I'm sitting here making a list just off the top of my head of other intangibles. Cause that intangible word is a, is a tripping up one. And I, I like your, your reinforcing the linkage aspect. Cause that's important. I'm thinking what happens on a hunting trip? Uh, you go, it's usually a joint activity or a small group activity. And in that group, you're handling weapons of some sort and often untoward weather. Uh, icy roads. There's a strong thread of trust that has to run through there. That's reinforced time and time again. You're trusting your your fellow hunters. There's an implicit sharing. There's a there's an optimism and a belief that something good is going to happen. Otherwise, you wouldn't go out there. And that's shared and reinforced. You you actually have to learn how to handle uncertainty because hunting is nothing if not uncertain. That the word hunting. It's not called killing. It's called hunting. There's validation what for your efforts, if not your successes, but the failures become part of that validation exercise and part of the curing process. And interestingly, there's some vulnerability. It's something that men don't do well. in general. you take a shot yeah. in front of friends yeah. and Matt knows this well, cause mm-hmm. I have missed animals. And at least in one case, he, he, he provided um, so some I. support on that. So <laughs> so I. And, uh, and you, you hang it out there, you expose yourself <laughs> and your, your own prowess or lack thereof. And, uh, and then there's that, that sort of sometimes sick feeling like I may have lost this animal. Then the joint searching becomes and your responsibility plays out. You find this animal. It's a, it's a truly a joyous moment. So there's just all these, this whole panoply of rich, meaningful, heartfelt things that happen in the field that just don't normally happen on a day-to-day basis. There's some analogies to sport or games and things. But this has got this is the stakes are a lot higher here. There's a life on the line, and you got to put everything you got in it. You got to be present for this one.
3: One of the aspects of
1: go ahead, Matt. Go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that. Yeah, that's absolutely spot on. That the consequences of your decisions in the microcosm in a very condensed day of hunting will run the continuum of. Joy, tragedy, sorrow, triumph, exaltation, friendship, <laughs> uh, irritation, and, and ridicule, uh, humility, pride, everything. And that in itself, we can say that about a number of activities, but the intensity involved, uh, given the consequences of your actions, are very, very much. Um, Intensified by the unique nature of hunting.
3: Yeah.
0: Mark, what were you gonna say?
3: Yeah, so I'm <clears throat> I'm looking at a couple of the criteria here. When you know when they're talking specifically about hunting knowledge and skills, um, and how that relates to <clears throat> nature protection, conservation, and how that's based on nature. And I think about things like <clears throat> duck hunting. So if you were to come in as an alien and look at, you know, or a scientist or whatever to look at duck hunting culture in Canada, you would see that people dedicate their time to it. They have clothing that's based on waterfowl. They have logos and designs based on it. They create organizations around ducks and waterfowl and they raise money and they do projects and they tell people about it and they make items art with ducks on it bottle openers that look like ducks Uh, all of this stuff uh, is is part of a cultural identity that has led to a passion to preserve wetlands that put ducks on the landscape. I think about trappers and i've maintained this before when it comes to science and conservation of small fur bears nobody knows Mm -hmm. more about these animals than trappers when they said we want to reintroduce fishers into the northern cascades in washington who trapped them for this for the u.s government it was trappers from alberta if you just said, oh, we got the funding and scientists had to go out and go, So how the hell do you catch a fish? Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I got a PhD in them, but it's like I need to actually catch <laughs> 50 of them. Um, you know, it now the skills and the knowledge uh of those hunters is is a cultural heritage that we should that we should preserve and protect because if we lose that. Fur bearer conservation our knowledge and our ability to conserve them on the landscape is going to go out the window nobody's going to know where to find a pine martin how much logging is going to affect it if you have to trap them and relocate them and you got a live fisher in a box is it a male or a female is it lactating or not like these are n- skills and knowledge sets of trappers that's creating a cultural heritage, those are intangible things. They wear the furs of these things. They celebrate them. They get together. Um, the, these are the aspects of this paper that I thought I really found fascinating was these things have went, this is a hunting culture. These are intangible things. So you know what, and that's worth protecting.
1: So you know what is really interesting? Um, a part of that is Charles List, the professor, the philosopher from State University of New York said that there's in his book you know hunting fishing and environmental virtue that three conditions have to exist in order to declare something like hunting to be a virtuous activity number one is competence so being good at doing what you do being a good shot being able to identify wildlife knowing the natural history um knowing your birds knowing the general ecology of the landscape um, is a virtuous activity is to be knowledgeable and competent to be able to do it right secondly is an awareness of where hunting or angling is in the broader scheme of how we manage and interact with wildlife what are the ecological um uh, economic and social benefits of hunting for broader society and our natural landscape and having an awareness of that, knowing what affects habitats at scale, knowing what human beings are able to change at scale for a variety of habitats and the effects thereof. And the third component is the community involvement is being able to share and promote very much like you know, the organizations that promote duck conservation and habitat um, uh, procurement and protection is a community related outreach that hunters are quite well known for. So those three elements Charles List would define as virtuous. I would say part of what being virtuous is provides validity um, to hunting or angling as, as a cultural um, heritage and a, a set of traditions that can be recognized using this criteria. There's a continuum of activities that we may say, hmm, you know, I wonder if this is going to fit. So let's go back to Poland and use mushroom picking. So when Lee and I were there, and me growing up Polish, mushroom picking is absolutely considered a recreational activity, a cultural activity and a food procurement activity for entire families venturing out into the forest two days after a good rain and being triumphant in finding, you know, pravjivki, kozaki, different species of these great mushrooms and being able to incorporate that into their diet and it's in the art and it's everything else. But does it have the same gravitas? Does it have the same value uh, and the same consequences to something like hunting? And I would I would tend to say that there'd be a difference. I'd be interested to see what Leah say about that.
3: So the, my question is, are there still mushrooms on the landscape in Poland because the habitat is there that's directly related to this cultural heritage around the importance of mushroom gathering in the I culture. So.
0: It's a race. Yeah, you're I would, you're uh, racing the boars and the deer to that, yeah, get to them after would, two days after rain.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that if anything, it's indirect. There's definite um, multiple use and the management of forests for their utility value and their existence value and their conservation value but the benefits derived in that as lee and i saw in poland is everyone from walking their dogs to picking mushrooms to hunting all in the same day in the same unit area so you know whether or not it's influenced by one of those activities or not uh, i would say that it's cumulative and and Lee's right, it's a race before the wild boar, the roebuck, and uh, anything else that would eat a mushroom. Sure you know, I'm them.
0: multitasking here. I'm listening out of one ear to the erudite uh, Matt Besco and the insight, insightful Mark Hall. And I'm <laughs> jotting down all these words that are intangibles that I can relate to hunting. And I'm going to read these very quickly, but I want to come back to whether or not they distill down to the word fun, which I think doesn't do them justice. Hunting, to me, an intangible, there's the belonging, there's the selflessness of it, there's the largesse that you receive, there's grace sometimes, there's the self-forgiveness for blown shots, there's a bonding that happens, there's mentorship opportunities that we can all do, there's prowess and skills, they talk about a fair bit in this paper. There's the honing of observational skills and a self-awareness, a spatial awareness. There's virtue that Matt just mentioned, there's pride, the good kind of pride, there's joy, there's delight, there's social acceptance, there's appreciation, and there's gratitude. These are all intangibles. Now, to the people that don't use, like to use words. I mean, we all love words. Everybody here loves words and erudition and and uh, metaphor and analogy. But when a, a hunter in rural Louisiana or southern Alberta or backwoods Ontario says, "Why asks us why why do you hunt?" and they say, "Because it's fun." Well, they are, I think, receiving this long list of intangible benefits, but they just don't have the conceptualization of the words to put it out there in a a more convincing form. And when you say it's fun, that doesn't play particularly well with the public because that suggests you're just a simple pleasure seeker at the cost of somebody else and at some other organism. And the puritanical or judgmental non-participant's mind is gonna quickly condemn that as fun as a pejorative. It's fun at somebody else's expense, but that doesn't tell the whole story. There are all these intangibles that are lining up behind this person. And that's the reason that they will give money to the conservation organizations, that they'll do volunteerism. That they will sit in a cold, icy tree stand for 12 hours without seeing anything. There's a commitment level there because the reward structure built into it is self-perpetuating. It keeps us investing deeply of self because the self is so deeply rewarded. And it's the intangibles that carry that through. We might give a good story about meat or about the bragging rights or about the size of the antlers, but really it's so much more than that. Those things alone would not carry the day.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The intangible part, as I see it in this paper, and this discussion, like it's not the intangible benefits that the hunter get, what are the intangible aspects of hunting that would define it as a cultural heritage that should be protected because it's based on nature and provides benefits to nature. So I do agree. A lot of those things that you said would be like, I'm the scientist looking at this group of hunters and telling like telling the rest of society, Hey, look at all these things about this group of people. Look, we've measured their pride levels. We've measured uh, the amount of time they practice. We measure the amount of uh, time they study, they read, uh, that they give back, that they um, do things that are uh, above and beyond the game species that they hunt because they they believe this, they get these joy from it. And that's an intangible thing. I'm I'm defining. The intangible things about this group of people, and and defining that as a cultural, as a culture, that's worth sure. a region protecting. So, so yeah, I, 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 I see the point. relationship.
1: So my question is: is okay? So hypothetically, if we agree to the premise of this paper that. Polish hunting meets the five, five criteria for intangible cultural merit and identity through the UNESCO convention. Um, if we have a tangible, the UNESCO heritage sites, there's a measure of protection for that physical object or area or monument or forest or whatever. But what does this mean with respect to the protection of culture of hunting? Um, And is it analogous to the hunting heritage act that we have here in Alberta is, yeah, you have a right to hunt. We have legislation telling you, you have the right to hunt as long as we have hunting seasons. And as long as there's the Wildlife Act that will guide you in order to do that. So I I guess that if, if anything, it will say, and this is me guessing, but I wanted to get the perspective of others on today's call, that would it protect the access by residents, non-residents as a intangibly, um or intangible cultural element that needs to be protected as an activity in terms of access to the resource when it can be allocated sustainably so if it's protected as such will it protect it from basically not allowing that activity or if the broader society believes that this is not a legitimate use of our natural resources. It's from an ideological perspective, uh, society has voted against it or so forth. Would this UNESCO um, designation protect that and say, no, if you have them, if you can manage them sustainably, then, and you're a signatory to UNESCO, then you have to allow people to hunt as a cultural heritage? That's what I'm interpreting, but it is, is like that the case down
0: their throat? When you go that route, I mean, I'm more of the, of the ilk you want to use honey instead of vinegar to catch more flies. And I've taken Mark's challenge and tried to do a list of, for non hunters, it's easy for me and for any of us to talk about the benefits to the individual of the hunter, but to trying to make a sales pitch, Matt, and not go full legal and justify it in the courts or in the, in the agreements, I mean, I'm making another list. Uh, it it fosters hunting. Fosters a commitment to conservation, disease control, habitat maintenance, watershed protection, more nature available to the non-hunters, reduced demand on the food supply, better forest regeneration, safer highways, and wild animals that are not semi-domestic, like the the three uh, blacktails walking across my yard a few minutes ago. They don't. They they thumb their their hooves at at uh, humans, they, they, they're not wild animals, they're like goats in my yard now. And so there's a lot of roles that hunting can play to reorient society's relationship with nature and their safety and their environmental quality and the amounts of habitat and the connectivity and the viewscapes and the erosion potential. So I think we, our activities spill over and benefit all of society in instrumental and hopefully appreciation ways. Um, and I think that's the case you have to make. When you look at how hunting affects beneficially a hunter, it's very different from how it would affect a non-hunter or even an anti-hunter. So, and I think that what this, these uh, IUCN things are trying to do is spread that umbrella of, of benefits over people that partake in hunting and people that don't partake in hunting.
3: I also see what this, this convention is about which is the big picture of preserving biodiversity on earth and where preserving cultures is a necessary precursor to preserving biodiversity and they they go hand in hand that that's a that's a, a, a an underlying thread i saw in this concept of the of the UNESCO yeah. convention was that preserving a cultural identity based on nature goes hand in hand with actually preserving nature itself. And the world needs that. Countries and regions need to protect, not just hunting, this was just one example, but to protect the things in their country or region where a culture and its heritage is connected to the preservation of of nature one of the reasons this is really interesting to me is because of this this tension that you used lee in this country about indigenous people's right to hunt and non-indigenous peoples so we talk about indigenous people's culture their heritage their culture is based around hunting um, whether it's seals in the arctic or plains bison or catching salmon on the coast there's people's entire heritage revolve around an animal. Um, the animals that are carved in the totem poles as part of the culture, their beliefs. Uh, and, and so when we see things like um, people go, well, nobody should be killing um, seals, that's just cruel and you can get your meat in the grocery store. And people are like, so first of all, in Canada, The Inuit people have a constitutional right to hunt them. Seal hunting is part of their cultural identity. You take that away, they no longer have the culture. Thousands of years of knowledge and tradition and skills around hunting are the reason that seals still exist to this day there. And so the United Nations would say you need to preserve that culture because it is linked to the preservation of that natural heritage as well. But as soon as the conversation around those exact same ideologies move away from indigenous peoples to those of us, us that are here on the North American continent, because of our European ancestries and our European cultural heritage, it's kind of like society saying, none of that counts for, for you. Some in society will say that, but I I think that you, you can make some, some do. So you'll even see the the staunch Annie hunters say, "No, we're fine if Indigenous people hunt grizzly bears, but you can't." Yeah. Um, so, so this is where I found this fascinating is is because it would potentially be a way to recognize, let's say, the European hunting culture as part of the heritage of North America, because that's essentially where it came from, and then morphed to the habitat and the species of North America, but. I think you could trace its roots back, um, and 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 to be able to say that in itself is a culture that's based on nature that's worth preserving. If you want to preserve nature in your country or region, and and I just like the idea of expanding that conversation to give yeah. rec- recognition to yeah, non-indigenous. That's a well a,
0: a really important point, and it's risky, Mark, because everybody on this podcast right now, and many of the people listening to it. We're preaching to the choir. We would love to have a shield against those that would oppose this thing that we identify with and we're passionate about. And if it's used as a shield, we basically have just polarized the issue a little further. My hope is that an explicit listing of these benefits of intergenerational transfer, economic good, conservation, all that stuff, will shine a light on the benefits received by the non-hunters as well. And they'll see it as... Maybe a sober second thought is, oh, maybe, maybe there is something to that. Even though I'm not going to participate, I'm not going to oppose it because it has benefits that, to the individuals, to the civility of society, and, and to the conservation of nature. So, I mean, if we, we're nothing if not land disturbers, our forestry, our agriculture. I mean, we pull these giant duckfoot plows through millions of hectares of land each year in North America. And without some intervention, we're basically going to become a continent of coyotes, deer, hares, and magpies. That's all we'll have. The, these are the, these are the species that thrive on highly disturbed environments. And we are disturbers of the environment in our extractive activities. Hunting is custom made for helping manage some of this excesses. I mean, where it's, it doesn't occur on, on some of these areas that we see exorbitant populations of, of Well, it's a natural species, but it's at unnatural levels, and they can further degrade the environment. So we become the agents, the handmaidens, if you will, of environmental uh, return closer to a a sustainable and healthy environment. Nobody else is going to do it. I'll tell one more quick little anecdote that I get to be the hero of. Uh, In Yellowstone National Park, we were driving down the... (laughs) the, a road and looked over and there was a, a yearling mule deer had bounded over and gotten the, the top wire of a barbed wire fence right in the crotch. It was hung up legs on one side, front end on the other side, and people were stopping on the highway wringing their hands, didn't know what to do. They were trying trying to get cell service to call the conservation officer. And I just grabbed a couple of people and said, let's just go pull him off the fence. I mean, <laughs> they said, oh, they were frightened to death. They wouldn't get close. It was a wild animal. Well, it was no. It, it must have weighed sixty kilograms. So I walked over there and, t- and said, "Grab one of the back legs." Said, "You grab the other." It's shaking like a bastard, but it's nothing that's going to hurt you. He said, "Keep it away from your face." Now, would you other people go over there and push the top wire down? And they they obliged, eight feet away, push the top wire down. And I said, "Now shove up." And me and this other guy just lifted it up over the fence, and it staggered off just fine. These folks were totally paralyzed. Because it was a wild animal that they were frightened of. They had no familiarity with the organism, the hooves. They thought it might bite them. They just didn't know what was gonna go on. And and it was the place that a farmer or a hunter could look at this and say, it's a simple fix. Let's just go get him off the damn fence. But the average urbanite just didn't have that skill.
3: But every single week in the news, in fact, there's an Instagram page called Tours <laughs> of Yellowstone. It's these people yeah. that wouldn't take the deer off the fence. Drove down the road two kilometers and saw some bison laying in a field and went out and jumped on the back and slapped <laughs> it on the ass and said, Take my picture, mama. Darwin never <laughs> and then they were gored <laughs> yeah. and trampled. And well, let's see if we can pull that deer away from the grizzly bear, <laughs> eating on it in the end. Maybe we can resuscitate the deer. And yeah. you're like, There's a great, there's a great. A this great philosophical doing, so. uh,
0: dilemma that Holmes the III writes about, about some uh, tourists that banded up and tried to petition the Park Service to, to get a winch and pull a bison out of the Yellowstone River in the middle of winter. It was freezing to death and it was, wasn't going to make it. And they felt so sorry for it. And the Park Service said, no, that's important grizzly bear food. That's nature. It happens. We're not going to do that. I get, get that. But on a barbed wire fence, that's a little different. You know, that's a human made made sort of thing. So I didn't have any problem with that philosophically.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This has been, this has been a a great conversation. I think a tough one to wrap our heads around. I think we've been trying to like think our way through it as much as kind of like, at least I have anyways, you know, trying to get my head around some of these things, but um, hopefully folks have kind of got the flavor, you know, for what we've been getting at here of, you know, could, you know, hunting in Canada or North America—could the intangible aspects of hunting be considered part of the cultural heritage importance of a region or a province, and and should that be legally protected under a World United Nations Convention? Guys, give me your final wrap-up well, thoughts I have on one,
0: one quick one.
3: This and maybe another. Nope. Is it a duck I'm story caught Matt. in a fence? I think we probably, to, we probably ought
0: to give the proper <laughs> Polish pronunciation of the authors of this paper. I don't have them in front of me, but if one of y'all does, I would love to hear you butcher it first, Mark, and I'd like to hear Matt say their names correctly.
3: I'll, I'll get Matt to do it because I, I don't have you it open. You got it,
1: Matt? Yeah. Wojciech Dajczak, Dariusz Alexandra Matulewska Wojciech Koprzyński <laughs> Yep.
3: No,
0: I, I here's my file. <laughs> so
3: so what I'm going to do here will 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 use AI and take what Matt said, it'll re-say it in my voice. I'll insert it into the podcast right after you ask yeah. m- me that question and then we will also use AI to replicate your voices, and you go, Oh my God, Martha, that was so amazing. You're just yeah. unbelievable <laughs> with the Listen, Polish if you language. Come out Jeez, you come
0: there and wave artists just... on in front of me, I, I'm not going <laughs> to.
3: Dude, we won't be artificially inseminating you. Don't worry about it.
1: Uh we've threatened, we've threatened with Lee on so several So I do have one wrap-up question, and
0: that is this is not easy stuff. Not question comment. This is not easy stuff. We've ro- rolled around it, wallowed in it, but I think that one of the duties that responsible hunters have is to think more deeply. Don't just relegate this is fun. Think about what you're really getting out of this, the deeper meanings of what you're doing. (laughs) Add some nuance to it. Dwell on it. you got a lot of time in a duck blind or a deer stand. Think about the import and the meaning of this, the value of it, and what the best parts of it and the worst parts of it. Maximize the good. Minimize the bad. Be a good ambassador.
3: Good summary. Matt, can you talk about
1: that? Oh, I can always top that. No, I, uh, <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I would say that these are universal concepts to many different cultures, many different countries. A uh, hundred years of Polish Hunting Association, which is the PZL or Polski Związek um is is much longer than a hundred years. The association itself may be a hundred years old, but the hunting traditions are several hundreds of years old, maybe even a thousand years old. Canadian hunting traditions, traditions in the in the United States, uh, are also probably several hundreds of years old, um, and I and I think that there's an opportunity for us to identify what those traditions are, and I think in North America probably more so than Europe, they're varied and they're quite unique. And, uh, but I'd say in terms of the criteria, they're probably quite similar in terms of meeting those UNESCO, uh, principles. And, um, I think to some extent we've tried through, you know, Ontario has a hunting heritage act. Uh, we have one here in Alberta, I believe there's a national one as well, but in order to extend this on an international basis, I do believe has merit, but likely I believe that there's a broader conversation here and that involves hunting as an integral part of not only our culture, but as a citizen citizenry, um, as broader society, as uh, relevance to the broader public, and recognizing the value of being more human by its participation, in addition to providing economic and ecological benefits to our natural environment. And I think that's where I think we need to go out of this conversation. Wow.
0: There are today's Great. lesson, Matt. Go ahead on. You know, brother, brother, Bisco,
1: uh,
0: that's, yeah. you're,
1: you're the, that nice. was good. Lee, today, 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 we're, I think you and I are on well, our game somehow. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's the Dr. Pepper <laughs> on a cumulative basis over years. Only,
3: only if it's, only if it's got peanuts in it. Yes, you were definitely on your game because you talked science, you talked social values, you talked, um, you know, perspective internationally, some history, your knowledge of your own country, and you talked about infar in, in in artificial insemination. So it was like leave it up to you guys to that. I would never have bet that that was going to come up. And you brought
1: it up, but... you know, and we. didn't.
3: No, I said it's artificial intelligence. Great
1: idea. That's a
3: yeah. yeah. <laughs> artificial intelligence. Where are you? Where have you no, been that's on insemination. the island?
1: That's only insemination.
0: Well, we didn't get enough cussing in. We, 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 <laughs> we, we hell, damn, crap, shit. There we go. We were,
1: oh, we the yeah. Lee, Lee, well, you got to squeal like a pig. Squeal like a pig, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta, we
3: gotta, we gotta use that as the outro. Uh, the outro music. Uh, Curtis, any parting thoughts on the use of? artificial insemination to do post-production of this podcast. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll have sponsors. to get back to you on that one. There's another sponsor. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: right on. The Hunter Conservationist Podcast is brought to you by Alpine Toyota in Cranbrook, BC. Check them out. I got word that the new dealership is open as of a couple of days ago. So, check them out. It's pretty slick i think uh we you and i should organize a a time to go down there and and uh see bruce and see the new dealership and see what all the hype is about because it's uh it's pretty cool and it's freshly freshly open so uh, as always we're very grateful for the folks down at alpine toyota and their continuing support of what we do here at blood origins canada
3: No, that's a good idea. So they're officially Cranbrook Toyota now. And I saw on their Instagram page, they were having a professional day today uh, which meant the main uh, facility was closed down and still parts of the big building are empty. They're just big, open concrete floors and they were doing office chair races. (laughs) (laughs) They're, they're, they're having fun too. We love, we love uh, Alpine Toyota. We love Cranbrook Toyota. Thanks a lot guys. Thanks for coming on the show again. Um, in depth, serious, and just a ton of fun, lightheartedness around these topics, and I appreciate that immensely. What you guys bring to these conversations.
1: Yeah, well, thanks so much, and and thanks for introducing uh, these topics to us because uh, I think we're 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 pretty comfortable talking about you know the slam dunks around you know. Whether or not thirty odd six versus two seventy or deer management Uh and allocation like conversation, but these, but 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 (laughs) but these topics these topics are relevant, meaningful, and challenging. And this is, I believe, what hunters need to discuss. Can we maybe do a podcast
0: from the the Toyota dealership someday, an on-site? You know,
3: I think that you bet that would be pretty cool. cool. Yeah. When you're, when you got your BC hunting license and you're coming over here to go hunting, uh, what I,
1: I want to see Lee in like a, like a 33 inch, like raised up tundra, fully decked out with like a horn that mimics a pig squeal. And that, that is Lee. With full gator route Lee. In 1987. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so
3: the truck looked yeah. like, Rusted a, like out a gator.
0: 1987 Toyota Corolla.
1: Yeah.
3: That would be the Lee (laughs) Mobile. Guys, thanks so much. Uh, Appreciate you coming on the show and look forward to having you a few more times before we're talking and giving Christmas wishes again. All right, everybody, thanks for listening and we will see you in the next episode.